over the last few weeks, <clears throat> we've been going through seven letters written by one of Jesus' disciples called John to seven different churches in the book of Revelation. Now, these letters have been seen relevant to church throughout history. So as we've studied these letters, we're asking God to speak to us now. And actually, as elders, one of the reasons that we wanted to go through these is it's important to remember at a time when church feels so fragmented and disconnected, it's important to remember that Jesus still cares for his church. The picture at the beginning of Revelation is of Jesus walking among lampstands, which represent these, church, these churches. Jesus cares for the church. So over the last few weeks, we've examined the encouragements and the warnings that Jesus has given to these churches. And so far, Jesus has had something good to say about every church until today. The church that we'll look at today was unusual compared to the other churches. There's no mention of persecution. They weren't in poverty. They got in pretty well with the city. And yet Jesus gives his strongest rebuke to them. He accuses them of being dead. Let's read together in Revelation 3. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Sardis write, and just in case it's not clear, this is Jesus dictating these words to John. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will be like them, dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Spirit, we have ears. We want to hear what you have to say to our church. Speak to us today, we ask. I pray that by your Spirit, Lord, in these dear people listening, Lord, you would take these words that I say, take your words, and that you would bring things to life. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, Jesus accuses this church of being dead, but he doesn't actually say what he means by dead. And what's generally assumed from this passage when it's taught is that they were called dead because they were pretty much indistinguishable from the rest of the city, this church. Uh, they were living in comfort and complacency. Now, this is a very important message and one that we actually should keep returning to and keep front of mind. But today, I actually want to look at something different. I want to press into what Jesus means when he calls something alive or dead. We're going to unpack this more in a sec, but before I do, I want to remind us of something important. Um, a church isn't an event that you go to. It's not a 5013C or an organization or, or something like that only. A church is a people that you're a part of. So as we talk about this, I want us to feel this personally. As we talk about this church, Jesus is talking to us. So to begin, let's get some context in Sardis to help us out. By all accounts, this church looks like it is alive. As I mentioned, Sardis was different from the other churches we've looked at. They weren't experiencing any obvious conflict. The letter doesn't mention any problems with the city. They're not called out for accommodating other religious practices. They weren't warned about false teachers like some of the other churches were. This is a wealthy city, and it was a wealthy church and actually pretty comfortable. 
Despite all of this, Jesus' assessment of them is that they are dead. So let me state something obvious, but it's easy to miss the, the weight of it. Jesus isn't saying, hey, Sardis, you're dead, and everyone knows it. He's, he's not saying, I, I heard things were bad, so I turned up last week, and I know it's COVID and all, but there was no one there. It's super dead. He's not saying that. He's saying, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So, so this means that the city that they were in probably thought that the church was alive. It, it means that other churches thought that this church was alive. And most chillingly, maybe the church themselves thought that they were alive. I mean, that sentence alone should freak us out. Because I think our church is alive. It seems to be. But what would Jesus say? So, being dead doesn't mean that this church was just like comatose and lifeless. Jesus says, I know your deeds. So they, they were doing things. So this contrast between life and death is an important setup. And what we're going to do is look at three other examples of when Jesus calls something alive or dead and see how it applies. Okay, so let's look at these three examples. The first one is to do with the Pharisees. Now, if you've never heard of them, the Pharisees were a religious and a political group famous for not only keeping the law but enforcing it and making sure others did as well. There are many, many stories in the Bible of clashes between the Pharisees and Jesus because Jesus broke their rules by hanging out with the wrong people, eating the wrong food, healing people on the wrong day. They clashed a lot. And Jesus typically is pictured as a pretty chill guy, you know, kind of loving and, and all that stuff. But the language he uses against the Pharisees is unbelievably strong. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Yeah. So in this first example, what does dead mean here? Jesus calls the Pharisees dead because they had the outward appearance of morality, but on the inside, they were hypocrites. Their focus was on living very moral-looking lives, and they would judge others who didn't measure up. And they thought that they were alive. So what were they missing? This is what Jesus says a little earlier. He says, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin. So just translate that into whatever spices you're familiar with, you know, everything but the bagel or whatever. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. So they were doing certain things, visible things, but they were neglecting these more important matters. So, looking at our example in, in Sardis, what could this mean for our church in Sardis? Perhaps when Jesus calls Sardis dead, it's because they were being like the Pharisees. It could mean that they had all the outer marks of a successful church. Great-looking teaching, great-sounding band, all these excellent classes, but they were neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. As we start to think about it like that, it hits a little closer to home. So that's the first example. The second example of this language of life and death is found in the parable of the prodigal son. And if you haven't heard it before, the prodigal son is a story about a son who demands his inheritance early from his father. He leaves, he squanders it, he ends up destitute and literally eating pig food. Um, and he gets to the point where he's actually looking at this pig food and thinking, this doesn't look that bad. 
And he, he wakes up and he says, what am I doing? I need to go back to my father's house. And as he's walking back, he's preparing the speech saying, okay, if I can just be a servant, at least I won't have to eat pig food. Um, <laughs> but as, as he's doing this, instead of rejecting him, it says in Luke 15, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his sons, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son starts his long speech that he's prepared, but the dad's like, no, 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 quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. So this is our second example. What does dead mean here? Dead doesn't mean that the son's heart had stopped. Dead means here that he'd rebelled against his father. He'd rejected his father and chosen to live outside of his house. Chosen to live away from him. So what could this mean for our crew in Sardis? Perhaps like the prodigal son, they were living in rebellion against God. They knew what was right. They knew who they were, but they were rejecting God. Now, now this might seem a little extreme when you think about a church rejecting God, but it's very possible for a church to do this. It's possible for a church to choose a path of obvious sin, to reject what God says about money, about sex, what he says about life, what he says about justice, how he defines right and wrong. That's the second example. The third example is a little more theological. The language of death and life is used when contrasting the law and the spirit. So let's look at a couple of examples. In Romans 8, which is a letter written by Paul to the Romans, he says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Later, in another book, in 2 Corinthians, it says, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So, so what is going on here? What is this letter, and why is it killing? Okay, warning. These next two paragraphs are a bit dense, and I'm going to use my hands to try and help us go through it, but <laughs> let's go. Here, the letter means the outward law of God, which represents the old covenant, which was before Jesus. The law in itself, all these rules, they were good, but they gave us no power to serve God. This law doesn't change our hearts. It simply tells us what to do. So Paul is saying that this letter kills because it exposes our guilt before God. If we use this, as the exter if we use this external standard as a measure of our goodness, which is essentially perfection, we will all fall short. I've heard the law described as a mirror. You hold up this mirror to you and you see yourself. So contrasting the outward law with the new covenant of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. It says that Jesus has fulfilled this law. He's met all these requirements and he's given us his spirit and his spirit gives us life. Okay, did, did that work? Law, spirit. I think we got there. Now this might, might sound theoretical, but living by the law is amazingly common especially in our culture, especially in our city where we focus on performance and optimization. Living by the law could simply mean defining yourself as a Christian by what you do and don't do. It could mean turning good things, like spiritual disciplines, into the end goal. It could mean that our relationship with God is about trying really, really hard to do a good job, reading lots of books, modifying behavior in order to earn God's favor. In fact, this 
is so common that Paul has to warn another church in Galatians where he says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? After beginning by the Spirit, you are now trying to finish by means of the flesh. In other words, you've been made alive by the Spirit. Why are you trying to do this without Him? Okay, so I know there was a lot there, but that was our third example of this language of life and death. And I hope that as we've been going through these three examples, we start to see maybe some of ourselves in these pictures. Perhaps like the Pharisees, we think we're alive. Our focus is on looking good. We're self-righteous. I know I made it sound quite extreme with the Pharisees, but self-righteousness can be so subtle. It can be comparison, looking down on others. Or perhaps we're like the prodigal son. We're in rebellion to God. We know what's good and right, and we've chosen the opposite. And we're scared of going back because we think our father's going to reject us. Or perhaps we are judging our standing with God and how much he loves us by how much we prayed this week. And if we've done a good job, we feel good. If we've done a bad job, we're pretty sure God is going to be disappointed. So what does Jesus say to these things that are dead? Well, this is what he says to the church in Sardis. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Okay, first of all, I don't even know what that means. He just says he's going to turn up like a thief. He doesn't even tell us what he's going to do. That's, it's not a good thing. Um, and some commenters actually say that this ambiguity was meant to jolt the Sardians out of their comfort. So this is a serious warning, and I want us to feel the weight of it. Jesus is not half-hearted about his church. He's not casual. There are consequences to action and inaction of these churches. Jesus is not messing around. However, hidden within this incredibly strong warning is a powerful message of grace. To this church that is dead, Jesus says, wake up. Okay, wait, stop there. Why would he say wake up if they were dead? That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus thinks differently about death. The fact that he says wake up means that waking up is even a possibility. They're dead, but they're not gone. It's not over. Jesus says he has found their deeds unfinished. This means that they have more to do. They're not done. And it also means that Jesus isn't done with them. He hasn't given up on them. This sentence, and in fact, this word unfinished, is what caught me when reading this passage. Like many of you, uh, these last 12 months has been the hardest season of my life. <clears throat> I've struggled. And, and my life is actually really good, and yet I've still struggled. Uh, funny enough, exactly a year ago, I was teaching the prayer course at Reality, and I've never found prayer harder than in the last 12 months. <clears throat> I've never felt further from God than in this last year. And that's come with all sorts of stuff. Anger towards God, deeper questioning and confusion than I've ever experienced. And even times where I would describe my relationship with God as feeling dead. 
But as I started to read this passage, I felt God get my attention through the word unfinished. I felt him say, Joe, you're unfinished. There's still more for me to do. You're not done yet. And I think some of us listening might need to hear that too. You see, this church thought that it was alive, but it was actually dead. And that's a serious warning that we need to hear. Some of us may need to hear that. But the opposite can be true as well. You can think that you're dead, but you're actually still alive. And Jesus' message to both is, wake up. I'm not done. This letter ends with a promise. Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will acknowledge them before my father and his angels. So there's a lot that could be said about the sentence, but I want to focus on the word acknowledge. Because when I hear the word acknowledge, what I think is how I greet another dad at the playground, just like them. (laughs) (laughs) Or how you greet someone in the muni. I'm pretty sure that's what acknowledge does. Acknowledge doesn't mean that in this context yet. Um, It actually means, the the word means um, to be of one word. That's the Greek. And it says that one day when you're standing face to face with God, Jesus will say say, I know him. I know her. I'm one with them. That's what acknowledge means in this context. But even more important than what acknowledge means is who is acknowledging us. Perhaps Sardis needed to be reminded of just who was talking to them. Perhaps we do, too. The book of Revelation opens with John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, having a vision of Jesus. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he and John were friends. They hung out together, ate together, high-fived, all that sort of stuff. And John rather confidently called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. But who John sees here is not his old friend. Who John sees here is a very different Jesus. This is how he describes him in Revelation 1. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. So church, I'd like to ask you to imagine with me what it means for Jesus' face to be compared to the sun. Perhaps you want to close your eyes as I read this quote from a book by Andrew Wilson called Indescribable. The light of the sun has been sustaining every form of life on the planet for its entire history. The sun is so dazzling that we cannot look away from it without being blinded, even though we are nearly 100 million miles away. The sun is so powerful that in one second it emits more energy than we humans have generated in all of human history. The sun is so bright that every year, simply by shining on cold and barren places, it causes life and growth to burst forth. Where previously there was empty wilderness, so does Jesus, only more so. So one day, this is who we're gonna stand before. This Jesus, in all of his glory, his face shining like the sun, 
Before him, questions will be silenced. Suffering will be a distant memory. This is the Jesus who makes things come to life by simply speaking to them. Let's pray together, church. And as we do this, I'd ask that you are open to the Holy Spirit speaking to you. So God, we love you. I thank you for your words. Jesus, I pray that you give us a vision for you and your glory. God, I pray for the dear people watching this, Lord, wherever they are, whatever they're going through. For areas that feel dead, Lord, I pray that you'd start to speak to them. Whether it's relationships that feel dead, Lord, prayer life, healing, hopeless situations. Spirit of God, speak life to them. And Jesus, give us a bigger vision of you and who you are. God, let us not lose sight of that. We love you, Jesus.